So as I said, um, I'm going to continue with a theme that we've been preaching on, which is the enemies or the shadows of our heart. And, and the, the shadow of the heart that I'm going to be speaking about this morning is the shadow of despair and how the Lord equips us to deal with that shadow of despair, that anxiety, that, 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 that's, that feeling that all of us are living with in this time. It's real, friends. It doesn't go away. It's there in the mornings when we wake up. It's there when we think about what's happening in the future. We are bombarded with that all around us. I penned this down, is that we actually live in a time with profound discontent. Just, just look at the news. Just look at what's been happening in our lives. The despair, the depression, the addictions, the loneliness. That is the time that we are, we are living in. And then the paradox of all of that is we're also living in an age where technology is absolutely just exploding. Scientific discoveries, the, the amount of technology and change that we're dealing with is incredible. For some of us that are working in the industry, um, we are doing change that we don't have enough time to, um, to actually affect if things go wrong. So before we lived in an age where, when I came into Switzerland, where you'd plan things, you'd test things, you deploy them, and then you'll have time of stability, and then you see this thing work. Life has changed. With all this, this discontent, with all this sadness that's around us, we are living in an age where things are, are, are done, we fix things going forward. I live, I live in a time where, where I know that we won't be able to make the, the fixes that we think, so we fix it forward. We call it an agile world. That's the, the age that we're living in. But then in contrast to that, there's so much sadness. There's so much despair as we try to deal with this reality we've been living in over the last almost one and a half years. Many of us have had these conversations with people, people we've been journeying with, people that we've been walking with, people we love, people that are hard to love, people that have set their hopes on things a year and a half ago that that have just crumbled and who used to argue fervently that uh, the way we, we, we follow things is just archaic and they're completely bewildered by the fact that the things that they've held on to and hoped on, it's just disappeared. And, 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 and you and I know, you've had those conversations with those people who are completely kind of just lost in the sense of where do we go from here? How do I deal with the fact that I can't see my mother who hasn't had a vaccination? How do I somehow deal with the fact that I know people that are just dying from this? How do I even plan for the future for my daughter or my son who needs to go to university? All these thoughts are just impacting all of us. And these people don't have Jesus. It's in a time like this, friends, that we need to be able to speak into those shadows of despair. We need to be able to speak about Jesus' hope. And as Christians, that's what we have. We have hope. The Greek word, and we don't have Fivius, our, our Greek families that are in the church, but the word in the Greek is called alpida. Alpida is the word that we weakly translate into hope in the English, in the English language. But if you ask a, a Greek person, they would say alpida means profound confidence. It's not just hope. 
It's a profound confidence. And we as Christians have this profound confidence, this hope in one central thing, one central event that exploded and changed everything. And that is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world needs to know this hope. And I just love this, that uh, Peter, as he was writing his letter, it's a short book, Peter, but it's longer, it's, it, we read much more on the news than if you just read, one, just read P, the book of Peter in a day. It is a fascinating and wonderful encounter. Peter writes this letter to all the Christians that have been dispersed. They've been persecuted and pushed from their homes and their families. And he starts naming the places, Pontius, Galatia. And he works his way all the way to Asia. And then he writes this down in 1 Peter from verse 3. And he writes this and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation mark. I love the punctuation of these things. Just You've got to read it with an exclamation mark. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. Wow. Friends, Peter is saying to all of those people that are experiencing incredible distress, He's writing this letter and he's saying this wonderful message. He's saying that he has given us, he's given those, those people and us together a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was raised from the dead. That is the hope. He goes on to say in verse 21, which is just so amazing in this little, little book that he wrote, little letter that he wrote. He says in verse 21, he said that their hope should be placed in God. The verse says like this, he's speaking about us. Who, that's us, through him, through him are believers in God, who raised him, that is God, from the dead and gave him glory so that your, that is us, faith and hope are in God. He's making this declaration as he starts this letter to everyone that is really experiencing what it means to be bombarded by real, real problems. That you have this hope that you should hold on to. And this hope is something that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it is enables you to have hope that is so entrenched in your soul that the resurrection will enable you to face whatever life throws at you. That's what he's saying to this church. And he's saying to one, about, one, one another right now. And the key question, it's a big question, if you think about what does the resurrection mean to you? That's the question. What, what does the resurrection really mean to you? So the first thing we need to ask ourselves, well, basically, we have to believe in the resurrection. We have to believe historically, that the resurrection happened. And as I was writing this, I was thinking, wow, how am I ever going to do justice to all the, the facts and the historical truths about the resurrection in my 30-odd minutes that I have? Because honestly, just to tell you the truth, the, the evidence is formidable. It's, it's absolutely formidable. 
it, it stacks up. Some facts, just some facts about this that you should just know. That most of the credible historical or histor historians or scholars, like in the 90%, so there's only a small percentage that aren't in the 90%, will not, will not dispute the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. Some of those scholars specifically go on to say this, and I want to actually say this. They say, they will argue that, um, that, that this specific fact is the most uh, defendable fact in the ancient history. That's the one. But these scholars all agree that Christ was crucified and that the disciples of Jesus, though they believe, saw Jesus in the risen form. And historically, they have to be able to stand historically. They might not believe it, but there's enough evidence to say because of this event, their lives and the lives of the church just exploded. An incredible fact. Now, um, I thought I could, I could try and explain these things, but I, I don't have time for that. So I'm going to use one quote from a one person who wrote an incredible book. His name is uh, N.T. Wright, and, and he writes this specifically. He says, um, no other explanation has ever been offered in the 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactory account for how the tomb can be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and the world view was transformed friends I get excited when I read about this topic and so what I thought okay all I'm going to do is mention three guys names I want you to google it I want you to look it up on Wikipedia and if you really want to be able to objectively answer with confidence just spend some time three three specific people who who I can honestly say have just spent their lives to be able to declare this fact so NT Wright the second person is Dr. Gary Habanas. Um, um, I can announce it. You'll see that on the, on the, on the internet. And the third one is uh, a pastor and a teacher named Tim Keller. Uh, his books, he's also written almost 40 books. Um, and I can honestly say uh, those books have drawn me closer to the Lord. It's helped me with my theology. These men have spoken about the resurrection um, and are able to give you facts. And it really isn't. It's really not a step of blind faith that some people would say you believe. You can be, have confidence when you, when you have an objective opinion that you can base it on history. So it's not just a blind step in faith that people will ridicule you. But you've got to know the facts. And the truth of the matter is that the resurrection has left a huge historical footprint in history. And, and that's the truth. But here's the thing I'd like to just say. So know that the basic truth is I can confidently say for myself that I believe that it really happened. Each of you need to answer that question. But this is the true fact. That knowing this historical knowledge, we know historical knowledge, that doesn't change what we believe in essence. Um, we need to have it not only in our heads, in our reason, but we need the fact that we believe in the resurrection to change our self-image and to change the commitments of our heart. That's what we need. And the truth of it is for me, um, and, I, and I just said it like this, we never will be able to really accept it until we see our need for God's grace. There's an element of believing because God's grace has been revealed to you through what God has done for you through the resurrection. What I thought I'd do is just give you a, a bit of a testimony of my life of how 
you know, there's a difference between knowing this and actually owning it and appropriating it in one's life. And in my own life, if I think back of my, my Christian walk, I really didn't grasp uh, the magnitude of this truth, to be very honest. Before I was a Christian, I had developed in my own mind what I believed God was and who he was and what he was in the way I wanted him to be. But then God came after me and he reached out to me and I, I heard the gospel and I realized what God has done for me and this grace that we spoke about and the fact that he died for my sins. And in that moment, I just knew that the way I thought of God was not the way God was. And I gave my life to him. And you know, I didn't know much, but what I knew, I knew. And I, and I didn't have a church that I could go to. Uh, I didn't, we, didn't, we weren't in a church. And for almost five and a bit years, I, uh, I just knew what I knew. And I grew confident with time to share about what God has done in my life. And so only when I was really at university did, did God just awaken in me the reality of his word. And even then, even then, me sharing with, all my, with everything that Ken is to all kinds of people of how God has loved me, um, I didn't really understand what the resurrection meant. I had this idea, and if you read 1 Peter, I, I, and it's not untrue, that there's this wonderful future that God is preparing for us. There's this hope in what is God is doing for us in the future. When we will have new bodies and when he's preparing this inheritance for me. It's all true. And it was something that I could hold on to. But it was so much more actually. But I, I, I only discovered that as I, as I really went into my 30s. And so there's this whole time of my life as a Christian that I was kind of not really realizing what the resurrection did for me. You know, I struggled with verses when Paul says that, um, when, when Paul says that Jesus was raised for our justification. That's in um, Romans chapter 4, verses 25. I think Mark, you put it up there. Who was delivered up for the trespasses and raised for our justification. I struggled with those verses. So he was raised up not only... Um, for my justification, at that stage I didn't even know what justification was. And then also Paul writes in Philippians 3 verses 10, and this one really used to rattle me, because it says that we as Christians should know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection, what does that mean? I battled with that in a way, and I didn't understand that. And God, God was so gracious, that even although I didn't know all of these things, he still loved me, he still allowed me to just boldly go and share the gospel with people, um, he used me in ways that when I think back, I think, oh, I could have done such a better job. Um, but this is our gracious God. The truth that I want to share with all of us, in these verses alone, we hear that God, through the resurrection, it's the source of our salvation and it's the power now. I made this wonderful statement. Through the resurrection, Jesus Christ not only has given us hope for the future, but he has given us hope that comes from the future into the present. The word of God is a message of those who believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that the future kingdom of God is in the present now. Oh, what a statement. The presence of God is here with us now for those who believe. 
Paul writes this in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, he claims that it's not only that we will be resurrected bodily at the end of time, but that we already have been resurrected spiritually the moment we believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. What a statement to make. And um, I'm going to read this. This is, this is what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. He shares that in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 1 to verses 7. But, but this is what he says before that. And this is the heart that I want us to hear. Remember, I'm trying to get us to the place where you realize that the resurrection helps us to deal with all the heaviness. This is what Peter writes to the church in Ephesus that are struggling. And he says to them that I've been praying for you that you will receive this, this truth now. He says this before verse 3. He says that you will live this, the reality now. And then he says this amazing statement. Allow me to read it. He says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, what the, what, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the wor- working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Friends, did you see that? Verse 18, what is he talking about? He's saying he's, he's, he's praying for us that our hearts, we're speaking about our hearts, may be enlightened. He's praying that these Christians who are Christians in this area, he's been asking the Lord that their hearts will be enlightened so they can deal with what life is throwing at them. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, in order that you may be, uh, will know this incomparable power. This statement is made in the now. He's not saying something that's going to happen in the future. He's writing to this church and instructing them I've been praying that you will, your hearts will be completely changed from the truth that you know. And then he speaks about the resurrection. He speaks about what God has done to Jesus. He speaks about it and he, and he declares it. And then I've just said this. This is the kind of crux of what I'm trying to share, this specific part. We should know this, friends, that the cross and the resurrection together and only together brings us alive unto God. Our spiritual resurrection that Paul is speaking about, once we were dead, but now through the Holy Spirit, we are able to be in the presence of God and to hear His voice. That's the statement. Now, I want to use an example that Tim Keller uses to explain this. And I'll specifically not put this on because I know then Craig's going to go nuts because there's going to be a, a feedback. This is what it means when you're listening and the example is as follows. When, when the mic's not on, you've all seen me do this and seen the worship team do this, and the mic's not on, we say, uh, the mic's dead, hello, hello, I can't hear myself. And then Craig or Ngorni or Jordan flips the switch and all of a sudden, you hear the voice on the mic. 
That is what happens, that we're then able to hear God. We are able to be in his presence. We were dead. The mic was dead. And when it's on, we're able to be in the presence of God and hear him. And that is this wonderful reality that we're dealing with. Paul says this so amazingly in Romans chapter, um, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. He says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive, in God, in, alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing, amazing truth for us to realize. That because of the resurrection, we have the presence of God. We have the presence of God. Now this truth, you just allow me two or three minutes just to kind of share this. Because this truth is brought home so amazingly as God shows us through the word, through the Bible, how he's been pursuing us to bring us to this place so that we can understand and have this intimacy with God. Um, you would know that God started this journey with, with creating a, a tabernacle, which was a, a movable sanctuary. And he, he said to the early Israel, Israeli nation, I'll put my presence, my holy presence, in this movable sanctuary called the tabernacle, and it'll move around with you. But you can draw close to me because my presence will be there. And that was the start of God's way of restoring us children to him. And, and, and that's what God did. But then we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. What does that mean? You must understand that the tabernacle was moving around with the nation. But the nation kept asking God as they settled in Palestine that they wanted a temple like all the other kingdoms. It was a man's idea. It wasn't a God idea. What God is saying to us and what he's demonstrating specifically <clears throat> in this passage, let me just make sure I know where I am. Um, the tabernacle was God's way of beginning to restore what we had lost. And um, I've written this down, that um, when the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, the veil represented the separation of humans from the holy presence of God. God demonstrated physically that there was no separation anymore. The presence of God no longer resided in the temple, the holy, 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 holy of holies in the temple. But here's an incredible fact that is hard to, and I'm saying this boldly, that actually the holiest holies, the presence of God wasn't there. It hadn't been there for hundreds of years. It's quite a statement to make for someone speaking like this online. But the truth of the matter is, you can prove this historically. You must understand that the church at the time, to be in the presence of God, they needed to go to the temple. This was where they knew God's presence was. There was no physical idol, but God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. They would gather close to that, on, and once a year, one of the priests would, would, would from, out of the lot, would be given the, the responsibility to perform the atonement for the nation. They would tie a rope around him. He would be able to, to do all the ritual bars to purify all the animal sacrifices. He would enter the Holy of Holies with trembling and fear because he knows that people die in the presence of God. And they would tie a rope around him specifically that if he dies in the presence of God, they can pull him out. 
And they would be doing that for decades and generations in the temple. And I've just declared that but God's presence wasn't in the temple. Well, from historical facts, we know from the, the, the wars, the Roman wars, that there was a general in 63 BC by the name of Pompey, who you know, they named a city over him, where an earthquake happened and a volcano exploded. But this general, he was a general that overthrew the whole of Palestine. It conquered the whole of Palestine, including Jerusalem. And it's recorded specifically about this general that... Um, Catch my, catch myself. He was curious to see that the, what the, about the Jewish God he had heard so much about, and he arranged for a self-guided tour of the temple. He brushed aside all the all the priests that tried to prevent him, and it says here he pulled aside the curtain to be in the presence of God, and nothing happened. The fact he was dismayed to find there was no God, no idol, only a golden table, a candlestick, 2,000 talents of gold, all of which he left undisturbed. Can you imagine what the nation of Israel must have been thinking of when they realized some that, someone that was completely heathen, that had blood on his hands, had walked into the Holy of Holies and wasn't struck down by God. The truth of the matter is if you read the word of God, you'll realize that when the nation was pleading that they would have a temple like other kingdoms, it even started, it came to the point where David asked God, he wants to create a temple for him. God said no to David. He said you have too much blood on your hands. And David, praise God, he said okay Lord. But he didn't give up the vision. He went and made the plans of the temple. He gathered all the resources for the temple so that his son, when his son was king, King Solomon, he would be able to build the temple. And it so happened. When he became king, his main project in 20 years, they had built the temple. And then if you read in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1 to 9, it's kind of easy. 1, 9, 1, 9. If you just take time to read that, it's actually, should, it would be a scary thing to just realize what God what did. Because Solomon then went and asked God to move away from the tabernacle and let his presence be in the Holy of Holies. And then God answers him and says this thing. He says much more, but I'm just paraphrasing. He says, if you abandon me to worship other gods, my presence will no longer be there. The temple will become a heap of rubble. It will be mocked, and he goes on to explain what would happen to the nation. And here's the truth of the word of God that we know. That even in Solomon's generation, he created temples for all 700 of his wives. They weren't as big as the, as the temple for Yahweh, but he built them to all the other wives. God's presence was no longer there. The nation went through all these things. By the time that Jesus comes, King Herod, who was a self-proclaimed king, had built this incredible temple. The nation of Israel were religiously following what they knew they could follow. They had their word to do that. But God's presence wasn't there physically. And then we know, and this is where it all comes down. I share this specifically to you to give you an idea of what God has done for us. At the death of Jesus, he dismantled the old temple. And at the resurrection of Jesus, he created a new temple. 
What does that mean for you and me who are believers in Jesus Christ? It's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. We are not just Christians that are lovely people that love one another, that um, believe the truths of the Bible. We follow this belief. We, we follow a, a beautiful code. We're not just Christians that do that, friends. Friends, do you know that if you believe that Jesus is the Lord of Lords, and you can declare like Jesus said in John 3 verse 3, that truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you count it amongst those people, friends, the Shekayan glory of God, the presence of God is within you. The same presence of God that shook mountains, that people were terrified about, that people died on touching of being in the presence of, that same presence of God is in you and me. And for most of my first half of my Christian life, I just lived an impoverished life. I didn't live with the reality of what God has done and what has actually happened to me. I didn't appropriate it. And many of us, many of us are Christians who don't realize what God has done through the resurrection. We don't realize who we are in Christ, really. We don't live as a living temple. We, we, we don't realize when we do things what we are doing because we are a living temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got just some amazing scriptures I want to share. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, this is what the Lord says. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Wow. Just take a moment and just sell her. Just ponder that. What does that mean for you and me? We have the presence of God as we pray to Him, the presence of God inside of us. We just need to speak to Jesus. doesn't matter how we do it. We must just speak to Jesus. We are in the presence of God. He's inside of us. It means that, that we can experience the light of God's glory and His face. Well, that's a statement to make. Who of you have experienced the light of God's glory and His face? Ken, are you really sure that that's in the Bible? Well, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who, for God who said... Let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When last have we been seeking the face of Jesus Christ? Because we don't know that we are living temples of, of our Lord. It means that we are partnering with Christ in what he's doing as the kingdom of God. It means what Jesus is doing, we are the kingdom of God. So when we're interacting with people, when we are serving people, when we are living God as the kingdom, citizens in a new kingdom, people see Jesus. That's what it means to, to be our hearts enlightened. It means that we are living stones. Now, in 1 Peter, from chapter 2, to, from verse 1 to verse 7, we are told that we are precious in Him. We are living stones. What does it mean to be um, he calls it spiritual houses. This is a beautiful reality that if only we would realize it, that we're actually 
are, are because we are spiritual temples and, and, and that we are precious, we should be glimpsing glimpses of heaven. Ken, what are you saying? We should be glimpsing moments of God's glory. Today, this morning, we experienced that. As I watched you worshiping the Lord, you've glimpsed a little bit of what it means to, to be experiencing the glory of the Lord. When you met one another, when I looked in your eyes that I haven't seen for a while, I see you ruining them at the back. When I saw he's not there, my heart just like, oh, I love that man. That's something that God does. That's a glimpse of God's glory that we're experiencing right now. You should, you should be experiencing God's glory when you start loving somebody that is not that easy to love. You should be experiencing a glimpse of God's glory when you are serving someone who really needs to be served because you've just somehow felt yourself doing this. And friends, if you're not doing that as a Christian, you need to speak to us because you need to know this. And we'll pray for you. This is what it means to be living in the resurrection and in the life. There's so many wonderful truths here. I'm going to just mention one more, and that is that we, we, we're supposed to be a priestly, holy priesthood. What does that mean for you and me? Because of the resurrection, what do priests do? Priests lead people to God. That's what they do. That's what we do. We lead people to God as a holy priesthood. People should be led to God because they're experiencing God. They want to meet God in this place, in your homes, in the workplace. That's what we do because the presence of God has changed our hearts. Uh, I just said all of this because I, I want you to realize there's so much more, but we can deal with the fears and the anxieties. And, 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 and yes, it's not going to take away those things. They are real in our lives. We face them every day. But God gives us a way when you start realizing that your hope, your living hope, is in Him, that He will help you deal with us, as Peter was writing to this church. Know this hope, friends. You've been dispersed all over the world. But know this hope that is in the resurrection. It'll help you deal with what you're dealing with because you have a living hope. You are the temples of the Lord. The presence of God is in you. The veil was split. That, that veil was ripped apart. There is nothing more that separates us from God. We can own that as, 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 a, as a nation and as a church. But... In closing, I, I, as I was preparing this message, I, I've been struggling to ask the Lord, well, how do I make this practical? And you know, we, we're tired of getting a list of do's and don'ts. And, and, and I was praying and I was asking the Lord, I want to make this real for people. And, and a friend of mine, I, I, I asked him about this and he said something profound to me, prophetically. And he said, Ken, you should spend time in the Spirit praying for the message not just learning the message. And then he said something to me. He said, you should take a pen. Actually, I was supposed to have a pen with me now to just demonstrate this. He just said, you must take a pen because be ready. God will show you how to do that, to bring that across. And I own that. And I spend time not just going through the message, but just in his presence, praying, seeking him, worshiping him. And then on Thursday, as part of the small groups, um, the guy that shares the message sends out a list of, 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 of questions and, and things to help the small group. And, and Christo, um, I know they, they're listening from somewhere in the south of France. 
he shared a message with all of us. And one of the questions he asked us is, how do we, what, do you, what, is, what does it mean for you to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? And so we as a small group, let, let me actually just read that specific scripture. That's from John chapter 4, verses 21 and 23. This is Jesus speaking to the women of the well. And he says, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So as a small group, we started and went through from one to the other to ask, well, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? And one of the people in our group, her name is Emma, when it was her turn, she's currently, her and Marco are traveling to Sweden by car. I'm estimating that they're basically crossing the first bridge into Denmark at this very moment. Hopefully they're listening to YouTube. But um, um, Emma said this amazing truth. And she said, there's so much untruth all around us, all around our hearts. But there's such a sense of safety in trusting the truth, our Lord Jesus. Oh, as I heard that, I felt the Holy Spirit say, Ken, where's your pen? Write this down. Thank you, brother. I wrote it down. I knew that the Lord was saying, the church needs to hear this. Don't give them a list of things to do. Friends, what does that mean for you and me? Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. The more you seek Jesus, let Jesus then reveal the truth of himself to you. We have a preconception of what God is and we've, we've kind of shaped it. But the more you spend time talking to Jesus in his presence, the more you allow this word to speak into your life, the truth of the matter is you're gonna discover a God who's always been the same. But you're going to discover things about our God that sometimes scares you. And it's going to be tough. Some things that disturb you. Some things that you just find hard to accept. And then some things that you just love about Him. Then you're on the right track. Then the truth of God as you worship Him will start working in your heart in those little crevices, those deep crevices where you've You've formed other things, other idols, that you find yourself being drawn to God and not to the way of, of, of doing things in, in another way. I wrote it down like this. Only then will your heart no longer be fixed on other things, other truths, other lies, other heavy things. As you find yourself being drawn to Jesus, just talk to Jesus whatever way you can. Be in his presence. Know this truth. Experience that when you speak to the Lord. Anticipate Him speaking to you. And allow the truth of God to be worshipped in that safety. And it becomes who you are. It enables you to deal with the despair. It enables you to deal with anxiety every morning. Every time you're waiting for something and it hasn't happened. And that's what the hope we have in Jesus. I just want to pray that all of us here today and those that are online will know that God is speaking to each of us this morning. That there is this living hope. It's in the now, friends. 
It's not something that we can cling to in the future. Let it move from our heads to change the way we are and the commitments of our heart. Please stand as, as I pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, I know that you've been speaking to all of us, Lord. Lord, I know that you have made ways to speak into our lives this morning. Father, I know that I've experienced your Shekinah glory come upon us as you've been speaking into our hearts and you're revealing things to us. Lord, I declare in the name of Jesus that our hearts will be enlightened, that we will no longer just worship you with hope that's in the future, Lord. Lord, I pray that each of us in this place and those that are listening online, Lord, will have this moment of Pentecost in this moment as we realize, Lord, that you are worthy and the way we've shaped you, Lord, in our lives. You are God and have always been God. There's safety, Lord, for each of us to know that you are the truth. Even although the world keeps telling us all kinds of other things, even although that we wake up with those thoughts of despair to face the giants every morning, Lord, we know that our hope is in you. Church, know this. I ask, Lord, that in these moments, for all of those that have never experienced what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, that we would be awakened in this moment. Lord, I pray for those men and women that have never even known you, that, Lord, on this day, that you would call them, that they would answer the call that they are hearing from you, Lord. And they would surrender their lives to you. And know that, Lord, through the cross and the resurrection, we are alive in Christ. I pray, Lord, that in this place, that we will never be the same again. From newness to newness, may your Holy Spirit continue to refine us. We want to worship you, Lord. You are worthy. Worthy, worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.